Hey, it's Scott Orner, Cruise Consulting, and welcome to another episode of Founders and Friends. And before we start the podcast, let's give a quick shout out to Rippling. Rippling is the new cool payroll tool that we see a lot of startups using. Rippling is great for your traditional HR and payroll. They integrate very nicely. But guess what? They did another thing. They integrate into your IT infrastructure. They make it really easy for when you hire someone to spin up all the web services and their computer, which sounds kind of like not a huge deal. But actually, we did the study at Cruise. We spend $420 on average just getting a new employee's computer up and running and their web service up and running. It's actually a really big deal. It saves a lot of money. And, and the dogs are eating the dog food. Like We see a lot of startups coming in to Cruise now using Rippling. So please check out Rippling. Great service. We love it. I think we have a podcast with Parker Conrad. You can hear it from his own words, but we're seeing them take market share. So shout out to Rippling. And now to another awesome podcast at Cruise Consulting's Founders and Friends. Thanks. So when your troubles are mounting in tax or accounting, you go to Cruise. Founders and Friends. It's Cruise Consulting. Founders and Friends with your host, Scotty Orn. Welcome to Founders and Friends Podcast with Scott Orn at Cruise Consulting. And today, my very special guest is David Spring of Runway Capital. Thank you, David. Thank you, Scott. Great to be here. So it's been a pleasure. We met pretty recently, but it turns out we've been living kind of parallel lives. And you have a ton of venture capital and venture lending experience. And so I was like, normally I talk to pe- new people and I'm like, oh, I don't know if this person knows what I'm talking about. With you, it was like completely different. You are so knowledgeable. I found myself nodding vigorously when we were talking. And so I wanted to have you on the podcast so you could talk about Runway Capital's venture debt product. Well, and vice versa. Our first conversation was like uh, talking to somebody from the same background. It was, <laughs> it was great. Uh, well, maybe you can retra- start by retracing your career here and then get to the how you, how you had the idea for Runway Capital. Yeah, absolutely. So I started out my career in investment banking, working at Solomon Brothers uh, in New York on Wall Street. Same time as Michael Lewis uh, was there, uh, writing Liar's a, Poker. So it was I have a great, a great time. story about that. But yeah, keep well, going. Look forward we'll to do it at the end. Yeah. yeah so and yeah. then I ended up um, migrating from there into the asset management world, where I, at a pretty young age, was the head of strategy worldwide for Lloyd's TSB Bank in the UK. And my boss at the time suggested, "Hey, if you ever want to run a money management firm, which I thought I did, that you need to run." money. You can't just be a strategy guy. And so I looked around the firm and what I found was venture capital. So I created a venture capital business for them, kind of came out here to Silicon Valley and found my way under the wing of a a, a guy who's super experienced in venture. And he showed me the ropes and I started making venture equity investments. Uh, First one was in 1989, so a long time ago. Uh, I got very lucky and backed some great entrepreneurs and had a good run in VC, got on the Forbes My list a bunch of times and in the process met some guys who are now running top venture firms and that's an important part of what I do today. But along the way, I kind of observed that there were a couple ways to participate in this ecosystem and one of them was on the lending side. So in 2010, uh, we started a firm called Decathlon Capital that's now the largest revenue-based loan provider. Oh, I didn't know that. Yep. Fantastic firm. And my two co-founders are still doing that. But in 2015, I saw the opportunity to marry what we were doing at Decathlon with some of the really interesting stuff that was happening in 
in Silicon Valley. Yep. And the decathlon model is mainly non-sponsored small companies okay. outside of okay. Silicon Valley. Yeah. And being here and seeing what was happening, I really wanted to continue to participate in that. So we put the two together and created uh, Runway. And um, we're very fortunate to find Oak Tree uh, Capital Management down in L.A. as an anchor investor and sponsor and raised that fund in, in uh, 2016 and made our first loan in Q1 2017. Amazing. I didn't know Oak Tree was one of your big... That's a very, very smart group of people down there. That's a, They are super smart and great partners. Yeah. I used to read their investment. They'd have like an annual investment letter. It was just incredible. Well, so <clears> the <throat> guy, Howard Marks, who's yeah. one of the co-founders and, and writes these incredible letters, still does it today, but uh, very, very interesting, smart guy. And that is true across the firm. Yeah. Uh, we, we couldn't be happier with them as a partner. Yeah. And you said something really interesting there where you had you'd been doing you started in venture capital for it sounds like 30 years had some had some big wins and then saw the the debt side of the equation and for a lot of the listeners out there people don't understand or know how deep the debt pool is of capital in the startup ecosystem do you i mean we've actually done a survey where it just came out maybe like a month ago or two months ago but it's about a $10 billion market now, which is incredible, right? And is that what you saw and got excited about the opportunity? Yeah, but I actually saw it as relatively small. Um, it's bigger than a lot of people think, but it's dwarfed by the amount oh, of equity. totally, you totally. Know, so if you look at venture equity, that was $130 billion yep. last year and is probably going to be close to that again. Yep. You know, and at $10 billion, it, the opportunity is huge. Yeah. So that was really what we saw. Yeah. Actually, you're, you know, the way you talked about that makes total sense to me because typically our clients will ask us, like, what's the right leverage ratio for a startup? And I'll say something like 25 to 40 percent of equity, you know. And so by doing that math, you end up with like a $25 billion or even Potential $40 billion. Potential theoretical market. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So you have a long way to go. That's really interesting. Yeah. So that so you saw this. You were familiar with it from being a board member and a VC and said, hey, this looks like a pretty interesting market opportunity for me. Absolutely. Was it a couple kind of uh, specific experiences with some of your, your existing portfolio companies where you really saw the instrument work for them and saw them extend their runway and maybe hit an IPO or reach cash flow break even? Or what, what, what was the aha moment for you? Well, so there was a lot of that as yeah. a VC where, you know, like most VCs today, it's become a common and uh, accepted as a best practice yep. to use some amount of leverage as you yep. grow the company. Yep. The real eye-opener for me was in the opportunity to use debt as a uh, supplement or complement or alternative to equity in companies that weren't necessarily perceived to be the home runs. So venture guys swing for the fences and not even a home run, but a grand slam or yep. a splash hit, yep. as we call it here. And that's where they put their dry powder. So the companies that are, for lack of a better word, good but not yet great, kind of get neglected. And there's a huge opportunity to fund those companies. And in the debt world, you don't need 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 times your money to have a great return. So that was one big eye-opener. Yeah. And then at the same time, a lot of companies were like kind of saying, we don't want to go the traditional venture route. You know, We'd like to find a less dilutive model to build our business. And a debt can fill that role as yeah. well. I want to take apart both those because I think they're both so accurate. What a lot of founders don't know is that like there's kind of the VCs have a, a real focus on kind of the top 20 or 30 percent of their portfolio. And when you say that's where their dry powder goes, that means those are the those are the deals they want to force more money into or participate in every round and use kind of their their uh, dry powder. And there's a whole swath of like kind of another 30 percent of the portfolio that's doing well. 
yeah. but maybe isn't a 20x or a 50x. And those companies deserve funding. And that's what I think you're, you're – we'll get into like kind of your instrument in, in a second. But I think that's a really smart way of looking at the world. Yeah. Well, so I saw a stat yesterday that uh, 2.5% of venture-backed companies provided virtually 100% of the return. Yep, yep. So if you're not in those 2.5%, you know, you're not in the top quartile. Yeah. And so it makes sense for VCs to swing for the fences. Yep. I get that. But not at the complete neglect of these other companies that deserve to get funding. Yeah, I love it. I love it. And then the other thing you're talking about was um, – what return profile a, a debt fund needs? You don't need the you know five x on the fund, or it would be nice if you get if you get lucky on a couple. That would be amazing. But you know you're looking probably what a three x or two and a half x or something like oh, that. Oh, not even not even that. Yeah. You know, so you know venture debt firms generally you know are kind of pricing for mid teens, mm-hmm. and you know if you get lucky and the warrants are really successful, you'll get twenty. Yep. You know, and you contrast that to an equity investor that at a minimum wants thirty or forty percent. Yep. So you know the the return hurdles much lower. The difference is we can't absorb losses because yeah. we don't have, you know, five and 10 Xers to, to make up for it. Yep. That's something that for entrepreneurs to understand when they start working with a venture debt fund is they're typically, they're, they're trading some upside for some downside protection. And not everyone understands that because they're coming from an equity orientation, but that's actually really important for a lending fund. Correct. Now, one of the reasons I want to have you on the podcast, you guys are doing some really interesting deals they tend to be bigger than kind of my experience. I, I yeah. used to be more Series A, Series B, but I did a couple of later stage ones. Yeah. But maybe talk about kind of your target check size and your target spot in the market. Yeah, so we focus on later stage. So our check sizes are 10 to $50 million, and we could go even bigger, but right now it's it's 10 to 50. And so that is um, aimed mainly at companies that are really well along yeah. in, in being established. So our portfolio average revenue is $30 million. Wow. Average venture equity raised is almost $80 million. And one shocking statistic is the average age of the company is 14 years. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I, wow. So these are these companies that have kind of outgrown their venture syndicate where the syndicate's not writing a whole lot of new checks? Uh, in some cases, yes. Yeah. But one of the big differences between what we do and the early stage stuff is I would say early stage venture debt always should be a complement yep. to equity, mm-hmm. never an alternative. In late stage, you really can just use debt. So a use case for us that's very often uh, the situation is a company needs $25, 30 $40 dollars to get to cash flow positive, an M&A exit, possibly an IPO. That's rare, but occasionally. And there's just no reason to use equity in that situation. You know, and if you think about if the company's 14 years old and Benchmark or Sequoia did the Series A 14 years ago, that fund is no longer even investing. Yeah, yeah. So they're well aligned with the entrepreneurs in trying to minimize dilution. Yep. So it's a, it's a great fit in that situation. Also, if you're doing an acquisition, you're going to need some capital to do that. And if the other big use case today is just preparing for an unknown economic future and whatever is going to happen, you know, the old adage about raising money when you can, yep. now is the time to do that. And beefing up your balance sheet in anticipation of an economic downturn or this venture consolidation that we know happens at the end of every cycle. Yep. And whether you're a buyer or a seller, you don't want to do it with no 
cash on your balance yeah, sheet. Yeah. You said about eight really smart things there. So <laughs> I wish I could hit three. <laughs> oh, that's a record for yeah. me. Yeah. So the beefy of your balance sheet, extremely timely, because we actually sent out uh, in our newsletter yesterday, or probably by the time people will hear this, it'll be like two weeks from now. But we said, hey, if this is what the tech recession looks like, here's what you can do. And because so many times advisors or people don't have a vested interest in preparing the entrepreneurs for that recession, like for whatever reason. And so we gave them a list of things they could do, including looking at venture debt to help extend the runway. I'm a huge believer in what you said, which is get the money on your balance sheet before the music stops. And I don't think, I don't think we're looking at anything like it was in 2008, 2009, 2010, but like, you know, it'd be nice to have a little extra money if things keep going sideways. And so it, are you seeing an uptick in demand in the last six months as, as the WeWork thing plays out and as the SaaS IPOs haven't done very well? Are you, what, what's your feeling on that? Yeah, a big uptick in demand. Interesting. Uh, both just to buy insurance, if you will. Yeah, I, but I'm a huge fan of that. But we're also seeing people moving away from lenders that they fear may not act in a steady way. <laughs> you know, that was a very, it, it, uh, very politically correct it, way of saying that. I know exactly who you're talking about. There's a few <laughs> funds out there that I would be very nervous about. Yeah. And, and certain banks yeah. that are known for coming in and out of the market when yep. based on economic conditions. And yep. that's the last time that, you know, the worst time to get a call from your bank saying we're pulling your line, you know, is in a downturn. Oh, I remember at Lighthouse Comerica, I got out of venture debt for like two years and we got a, it felt like a call from every single one of their portfolio companies trying to get us to refinance. And as a lender, when you get those refinance calls, you're like, what do I don't know? There's a really bad adverse selection problem there. Correct. Yeah. Yes. So doing it now is very smart. Yeah. The other thing you said, which I love, was being an acquirer instead of someone being someone who is acquired. Yep. Maybe talk about some of the stuff you're seeing there where people are Maybe I don't know if they are, but anticipating a slight downturn and they want to beef up their balance sheet to be able to buy other companies. Oh, absolutely. So there's this whole, you know, eat or be eaten kind yeah. of mentality. And, you know, for the bigger venture backed companies that have uh, strong backers, debt and equity, you know, they're looking to take advantage of an economic downturn and buy smaller competitors, you know, or they may be acquired from a big corporate guy. Uh, either way, having a strong balance sheet is really important. I totally agree. And, and that second example you said about when you're getting acquired, as a you, even your companies, they're, they're big companies, but they're yep. getting acquired. One of the nice things about taking debt as a substitute instead of as a instead of new equity is every time you raise new equity, your price is going up, and the that new investor wants a three x probably. Yeah. And so you're not resetting the valuation, which means the company by taking debt can actually sell themselves for a more reasonable amount of money, but still get the same return. The investors still get the same return, which is which is really important. I don't, that's one kind of, one weakness I'm seeing in the market right now where a lot of founders are rushing into these huge equity raises at billion dollar valuations when they're not even close to being there yet. And they don't know this because they haven't lived it yet, but it's, it's limiting their exit potential because the venture capitalist who put that money in is not going to sell for, they don't want the liquidation preference. They want to keep running it out and, and drive the big valuation. Do you are you seeing that like companies come to you and say, "I don't want to reset. I don't want a, a huge valuation uptick if I don't need it because I won't be able to sell myself." Or is that something that people are not thinking about yet? More often, people are not yeah. thinking Maybe about I'm it. Maybe I'm too old school or too conservative. People are yeah. very um, attracted to that large valuation <laughs> number, yeah. and it can get you in trouble. Yeah. And you know, another use case for us that's 
very common is somebody who raised money at a value that's too high and they need to buy time to, to earn back into that value. They don't want to do another price round because yep. it'll probably be a down round. How do you how do you underwrite those situations? I'm just kind of curious because on the one hand, it could be a great opportunity for you. On the other, though, if you get into bed with a company with a valuation too high, it can make it so you get stuck too. Like, do you? How do you think about those situations? Well, as you know, we're enterprise value lenders, so yeah. we're always lending relative to the enterprise value, and so establishing enterprise value is one of our critical core competencies. And we never use the last round value to anything. To, yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. it's a data point, yeah. but, you know, and so doing the deal becomes more complicated, especially on the warrant side, when the last round was just clearly too yeah. high. You know, we like to lend no more than 20% loan to our value, you know, or OLTV. So we'll do the normal valuation, and then we'll just have a conversation about how we price the warrants. And if we can't agree on value, then we'll just put in something like 2X. Yep, yep. Yeah. Oh, like a two x two x return, return on, on the, the warrant. Yeah. That's actually really smart. Yeah, yeah, because what we kind of saw is this, and again, we were doing earlier stage stuff, but yeah. we would get stuck where a company can never get additional capital after us if the valuation was totally out of whack. And then you're looking at a, a recap, but in recaps, the lenders tend to come under pressure too. Yeah, at least at the early stage. Maybe your stage. Maybe this is some calculus you've made. There's enough enterprise value there where you just hold firm and say, hey, we're not taking a haircut, anything like that. Let's recap this company. So we have not yet been asked to take a haircut. Uh, and keep in mind, if we're doing our job and we're really pretty accurate in lending no more than 20% loan to value, yeah. there's a pretty big cushion. I yep. mean, it can happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and you know, I'm, I'm certain at some point we will be asked to convert a portion to equity, but that has not happened yeah. yet. And the reason we favor the late stage is, one, we're underwriting the business, not the sponsors. Yep. And then two, there's just a lot further to fall. And if you do a good job monitoring, you can see when things are starting to go off the tracks and put in place a program to avoid a complete yeah. restructuring. We have had companies do like a zero pre-money recap on the equity, but it didn't impact us. Yep. Yeah. Because there's so much enterprise value that they know that you could sell the company. Correct. Needs it. It's yeah. because it's a 12 or 13-year-old company, and some of the venture guys have dry powder and some don't. And when it comes time to continue to support the company, they're like, okay, you, it's a pay-to-play. Yeah, exactly. Deal. Yeah. Maybe talk a little bit more. We've covered some of this already, but like the differences in earlier versus late. Because again, my experience is all earlier venture debt, but you looked at this market in 2010 and saw that, and or maybe 2015, yep. saw this was like pretty attractive at the late stage. Yeah. Well, so the mega trend, of course, is companies staying private longer. Yep. Yep. So they're accessing the private market, both debt and equity, as an alternative to going public. You know, we saw Peter Thiel's announcement this week. I mean, that's definitely a trend that's continuing, even with this little kind of temporary bounce in IPOs, which may be now dampered with the <laughs> recent uh, result. But, the, but you know, nonetheless, even if we have this level of IPOs, it's nothing. I mean, it's still 100 yeah. IPOs. It's yeah. nothing compared to the number of venture-backed companies yep. that are out there. And there's plenty of capital for uh, companies to continue to grow and to even get liquidity for early-stage investors. So that's the mega trend that we're, we're uh, supporting. And then in the late stage, the idea that debt is cheaper than equity is just a fact, you know. <laughs> the people who are doing the late stage tend to be kind of more 
numbers driven, financial oriented kind of. And, the, and when they put money in the company, they're modeling out a certain exit. Where I find like the earlier stage investors are are falling in love with a product, a founder, believing this can be a big market opportunity. But like, it makes total sense to me that the late stage equity investors would love debt too because they're preserving their ownership for sure in the same way that yeah. So it makes it makes so much sense. There's something you said kind of in terms of when you guys look at a company, you really underwrite it. And you're in a, in a way, I feel like you're doing the company a favor because you're doing your homework. But maybe talk about your underwriting process and how you evaluate a startup Yeah, or so, late stage startup. Yeah, of course. So w- one of the things that we pride ourselves in is that all of our team that interfaces with borrowers, they all have direct venture equity mm. experience. So, you know, we've all been in the trenches help uh, helping entrepreneurs build their businesses. We understand that things aren't always straight up and to the right. It's yep. a bumpy road. We need to have a steady hand in, in not panicking when things get choppy. On the other side, our credit team, hardcore, mm. all in New York, you know, they come out of- <laughs> Sharp you know, elbows. They're, yeah, they're serious credit guys. So, you know, we do real underwriting. And one of the things that we do that I think is unique is that we underwrite the loan separate from the company. So, Can you say more about that? Well, so you you don't want to either have a good company and a bad loan or a bad loan to a good company. Neither one is great. You, you need to have both kind of in sync. So, you know, we'll underwrite the quality of the company, all of the things that you would expect yeah. to look at. And then on the other side, we're looking at the loan in, you know, uh, how long is the I.O.? You know, are there covenants or not? You know, all the kind of stuff that would go into making a, a good loan yep. and put those two together to come up with a pricing formula. You know, we have a couple uh, special products that I can talk about that offer entrepreneurs creative financing solutions yeah. to meet their specific needs. But I'd love to, uh, yeah, I'd actually I, love to hear that. Okay, yeah. so I'll come back to that. But the, mo- the most important thing is that by doing real underwriting, we understand the risks in the company. And if that company has a bump in the road and perhaps there's a default, and I've heard from some of the placement agents that 80% of venture debt deals go into default. So wow. just expect it. Wow. It's part yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah. 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 So you're going to have some kind of a restructuring. So yeah. you want to make sure as a borrower that your lender knows and that you know how they measure risk because if things don't go as planned and they can't measure risk, what are they going to do? Panic. And that's the worst thing to happen at that time. I cannot emphasize that last point enough because the the new entrants in the market especially will come in thinking this is a great asset class to lend into and you can get great returns on it. And they don't want to do the diligence because they don't want to upset or lose deals. Yeah. But then that, and the borrower thinks that's great. This look how easy this money was to get. Yeah. But then when things go bad, they are the first to clamp down, and they don't necessarily care about the reputational risk or being a long term player. And it makes life really, really difficult for the startup. So much so that a reputable lender who knows what they're doing, like you, doesn't really want to come into that situation and refinance it out. You can you can actually in your selection of a lender actually really hamstring the company, and so you in, as a borrower you want the lender to do diligence. It's actually in your favor. Yeah, well, it's, we find that they appreciate that. So yeah. you know when we go in, you know we'll spend a day at the company and meet every single senior executive. We'll go through every element of their business, and they really appreciate that we take the time to to do that. And oftentimes they'll learn something in the process, and and then we can just be a better partner. The yep. more we know. We're a better partner. Yeah, and in the, in the stormy seas is when the the better partner is super duper important. Yeah, 
So on the two products yeah. that we've created, one is called Rose, the one the runway one stop enterprise loan, which is a combination of term loan and revolver. Oh, interesting. So for a borrower that has a, an accounts receivable or inventory piece to their business, and you know they could get a better rate from a bank, but they don't want to have two borrowers just because of intercreditor stuff and all that, we can do a, we can do that ourselves. That was actually something I saw in the early days of this cycle going up. We were doing a lot of deals with Comerica yeah. and SVB in that they would be the senior and we would be the junior and provide yep. kind of more flexible, bigger dollar amounts. Yep. That's great that you guys have put it all in, under one house. Yeah, and the banks aren't really opposed to it because at the end of the day, the banks really love the deposits and all the other fee-generating yep. business that comes with yep. it. And they're, they're, they're not really super keen on doing big term loans. Yep. So if we're going to do a $25 million term loan and there's a $5 million AR facility with it, you just put it in the rows. The bank gets the deposit. They get the credit card. They get the Forex and all that kind of, and everybody's happy. That's really cool. Yeah. And and the intercredit agreement, just to go back to that one second, that is where there traditionally is a lot of fights between the two lenders, especially if things go sideways. So you may have a lender like yourself who's open to working with the startup when things get rough. Banks traditionally don't really that, that's a that's a red flag in their credit portfolio yeah. that the the regulators are going to see, and so they they are not as keen to work with the startup, and so having it under one roof actually really helps things. It does, and you know if somebody prefers to have the bank do the AR, we have a standard intercreditor with SVB yep. and other banks, mm-hmm. and we can do that. It it depends on what's best for the borrower. That's really cool. So and the, the second product? the second one is called the Eagle. The ex- you guys are good at branding for, well, uh, for you know a, a these, these little acronyms. So it's the and you'll love this one. So it's the extendable adjustable growth loan for enterprise. Nice. And everybody, whether it's you and I or a startup, we all think our credit's going to be better in two years than it is today. And we don't want to lock into a three or four year interest rate that's higher than we think we should pay. Mm-hmm. And you know, we're really big on minimizing churn in our portfolio. When we find a good borrower, we want to keep them on the books, that's really smart. even as they become a better credit. And so what extendable means is that based on achieving milestones, we'll extend the I.O., we'll extend the term, adjustable, we'll adjust the rate down based on them becoming ah. a better credit. And it's all pre-wired. So that is, there, is there like metrics you use yeah, to, yeah. to do that? Oh, yeah. That? There's a grid. There's a pricing grid, and then it's based on milestones. So pretty much it's a deal. Like if you do what you say you're going to do, you become a better credit, and we'll change your pricing I love that. accordingly. I love that. Yeah, because yeah, that's actually at Lighthouse. That was one of the things that were, was hard for us in that – they would grow out of us. Not we. We felt like we should do another deal, but sometimes they would be able to access cheaper capital or something like that. Right. So that's great. That you guys have built that into your product. Right. Another thing that borrowers, you know, need to be aware of, and kind of the eagle was created in response to, is that you know the I/O period, the end of the I/O period, interest only period, interest only period becomes a natural time to decide if you want to stay married. And after 18 months, for most companies, especially startups, and even in these later stage guys, they're not at a point that they can amortize. So you either have to 
extend the interest-only period or refinance. Yep. So for some lenders that like churn because they like the back end fees oh, and the prepayment penalties, I didn't think about that. Yeah. Yeah, they're not. They they don't want to extend. It's yeah, just yeah, yeah, no, yeah. go refinances. Yeah. Yeah. And we have the view that like almost any other business, it's cheaper to keep a customer <clears throat> than get a new one. So you know, if if we need be, we'll extend the I O. We'll drop the rate. We'll do whatever we have to to keep you in yeah. the portfolio. And that's great that you have a capital base that can support that. Because like sometimes lenders, uh, especially fund lenders, want to recycle the capital. Yeah. Because they don't they don't have an elastic fund base, and so it sounds like you guys have the capital to back that up. We do. So, and that's the beauty of a BDC. And yeah. several players in this market are BDCs. Yep. They're permanent capital vehicles, so yep. we don't have to worry about you know the end of a fund or anything like that. That's the business development corporation, which is a pretty big innovation in the venture lending world because it allowed. Traditionally, lenders had been either banks or dedicated funds, like how Lighthouse was, where we have yep. like MIT as our investor. Yep. Now you've helped pioneer the BDC structure, which is permanent capital. You kind of get the best of both worlds, right? Yeah, we well, we didn't pioneer. Well, I mean, Her- Hercules early... went public in two thousand and four. That's right. As capital a BDC, source, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. and there's about fifty publicly traded BDCs yeah. today. You know, three of them are in venture debt: yep. Hercules, Triple Point, and Horizon. Yep. And we're a BDC, but we're not traded. Yeah. So we file with the SEC, but we don't trade publicly. Yep. And um, you know, if you went and look at those uh, fifty publicly traded BDCs, BDCs, you know, it's names like Carlyle, TPG, Apollo, KKR, you know, mainly focused on doing big leverage loans. And then those three uh, venture deck guys. It's been a great vehicle for also, there's a lot of kind of individual investors who buy those kind of publicly traded stuff because they like the yield. Yep. And that's an important point on on BDCs. I know that's not the topic of your, uh, your podcast, but BDCs started out being focused at retail investors. And when we did it was the beginning of the shift towards institutions. And our fund is almost all institutional investors. That's amazing. That That's a really good insight. Cause yeah, we, when we were doing Lighthouse, we were trying toying with BDC, but we didn't, it was still fairly new for us. So we didn't quite understand it. And I think to your point, a lot of institutions didn't know how to invest in a BDC. They, yep. they were used to the dedicated fund structure in a different way. So Correct. that's really cool. We could talk all day. I love what you're doing. I'm, I'm actually a believer that the market's getting a little soft right now. Is there something that a diagnostic that startups and late stage startups especially can kind of look in the mirror and say like, you know, now's the time to reach out to Runway or I should really be thinking about building up my balance sheet a little bit. Like what should they be thinking of those founders and, and startup CEOs as they decide whether to reach out to you or not? Well, I think they should definitely reach out in almost in any case because having a conversation can't hurt. Yeah. Knowing what your options are yep. uh, can't hurt. And buying insurance, if you want to call it that, at this point in an economic cycle, you know, whether you're fearful about where it will go or you're super aggressive and you're just waiting for your competitors to stumble <laughs> and you're going to pounce on them, you know, you need to have capital to, yeah. to do that. And, you know, we all know in an economic downturn who has liquidity is going to win the day. So, you know, that's the reason that we've raised more money. Our fund is now significantly larger and we have a lot of resources available. And, you know, in partnership with Oak Tree, it's almost a, a bottomless pit. Yeah. So, you know, it, I, I would encourage anybody who's thinking of raising capital, whether it be debt or equity, to, you know, to, to explore it. And one thing we didn't talk about is we do both sponsored and non-sponsored. You know, so sponsored obviously being you're backed by a VC. Yep. But on the non-sponsored side, same thing, 10 to $50 million, 
companies that are looking to grow. And in that case, they have never taken outside yeah, equity. Yeah, yeah. You know, the difference is that um, on the sponsored side, the company is always still not yet cash flow positive. Yep. On the non-sponsored side, because they don't have deep pocketed equity, they need to be really close yep. to cash flow positive because yep. that's going to be the source of repayment. For sure. And I just want to just emphasize what you said for the listeners. You are a professional investor. You've been doing this for 30, 35 years. You have made a decision to beef up your balance sheet going into this kind of time. And so I think sometimes people talk the talk, but you are actually demonstrating through your actions that there is an opportunity coming and that people should prepare for a rainy day. So I, I love that. This has been an awesome podcast. Can you tell everyone where to find Runway Capital and how to reach out to you? Of course. So runwaygrowth.com. And my personal email is ds, for David Spring, at runwaygrowth.com. And all the other folks are, are listed on our website. And please reach out to anyone. We're looking forward to talking to you. I love it. Thanks for the podcast, David. You guys have a really unique role in the ecosystem. I love it. And I look forward to when our clients are getting big, I can send them over to you <laughs> and they can get some money for a rainy day. Perfect. really appreciate it. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, pleasure. So when your troubles are mounting in tax or accounting, you go to Cruise. Founders and friends. It's Cruise Consulting. Founders and friends with your host, Scotty Scotty.